Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm David Kern, and I quickly wanted to say a word of thanks to some of our friends who are making this show possible. Our friends over at the CLT, the Classic Learning Test, are doing an amazing work. They're a classically-based alternative to the SAT and the ACT, and it's the fastest-growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of them even endorse the CLT as their preferred admissions test. That's even more than the SAT and the ACT. Students who take the test can benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To learn more or to find out how to take a test, you can head over to cltexam.com. Again, to register for the CLT, you head over to cltexam.com. So again, thanks so much to our friends over at the Classic Learning Test for sponsoring the Cersei Institute Podcast Network this month. It's because of them and partners like them that this network is possible. And with that, enjoy your show. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Ask Andrew. Those of you who were with us for episode 13 and are back again, thank you. Um, you'll remember the unforgettable story that Katie, Katerina, Katya, Catherine the Great, mm-hmm. Rena Kern told us about her journey from the beaches of Kenya to the uh, southern state of North Carolina. Um, of course, most of the story focused on focused on getting around Kenya and Uganda because Katie has been in Uganda for a few years now where she's been teaching uh, first in a homeschool setting, I suppose, or I'll let you describe it, but she's been teaching for a few years in, in, in uh, Uganda. And I wanted to bring her back to talk about her experiences as a teacher. At the end of the last episode, I asked her the question, okay, what does all that story have to do with education? And then, change the question to how do you educate a person to live in that world? And I want to address that question now. So to start with, Katie, why don't you just describe for us briefly what you've been doing in Uganda, in Jinja? Um, Well, I was hired to come over and essentially homeschool some high school girls, just four Ugandan high school aged girls who actually range in age from 16 to 21 Um, and I was teaching all of their classes at first and that was two years, two and a half years. And then we transitioned over to basically a staff kids school for missionaries in Uganda. So probably about 50% of my students are what we call Mzungus or foreigners. And then the other 50% would be my Ugandan students. And so, so you taught them age 16 through 21, I imagine you had to have a curriculum to teach them. You had to teach them something. Mm-hmm. What What did you teach them? Well, it depends on... <laughs> um, well, I mean, in short, I could say I taught all of their subjects. Um, 
but that's not exactly what you asked, is it? Um, for the humanities, I sort of had a curriculum. I mostly was piecing piecing it together with primary sources and just what I had garnered from my own life and being classically educated and really mixing the what we would call subjects together into kind of a big blob. So it wasn't really so much just individual subjects as it was. I was trying to give them an understanding of humanity, the richness of humanity, um, an understanding of who they are as humans in, in, mm. in the large scheme of things. And um, the narrative that the Lord has written from the beginning and their role in that, mm. I guess, would be the mm. main thing I was doing. And then everything else just stemmed off of that. Mm. What's everything else? What, what sort of things would, I mean, obviously can't say everything, but what would mm-hmm. be included in the everything else? Well, like um, the details, of course, you know, what year did Christ come and why was that the year that he came? Um, what were the big questions that the ancients were asking and have they been answered? Are we still asking those same questions? Um, when when did science become what it looks like today? When did we get the scientific method and why? Why did that come about? Um, how, how are the ways we were looking at the world different? How have different cultures looked at the world in different ways? And what can we learn from each of those, those different methods or different, um, lenses through which cultures have looked at the world? That's, that sounds very philosophical. How how did, how did these, how did these kids respond to such a philosophical curriculum? Because American kids were told don't like it. Well, (laughs) um, in, in different ways. I, my students are all very different. Um, I have one student who I would say is very grounded in narrative and in fable. So with her, I spent less time explaining the philosophy behind what we were doing and why we were doing it and a lot more time just living within stories and living within characters. And I tried to make how do you, all of how the do you different... Mean that? How do you live within a story or live within a character? What do you mean by that? Um, well, practically, I would say in all of our subjects, if we want to call them that. We don't, but go on. I try to, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right. in all of our subjects, I try to, to involve story, try to make it a story. And um, most of our questions, we well, all of our questions revolved around the normative, the should question. And they were able to use that should question to find their own voice and to understand the voice of the characters. So in different subjects or in different times of day, they might say, oh, hey, this is like that decision that Bilbo Baggins had to make. Or um, one of my students in uh, in math said something about numbers and and truth in math and being as beautiful as the eyes of Galadriel or something like that. Wow. Like they're, they're relating things back very much to story and, and living within those stories very practically. I mean, outside of school, they, they'll relate things back to story and talk about characters and, and talk about their own lives as a story. And, and, and we, we spent a lot of time in fables, reading fables and writing fables and discussing fables. And so I, I think that they were able to, very literally live within stories in all of their different subjects. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So then did you also teach science and math? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did you do that? Was there anything like what math did you teach? Um, well, I mean, our curriculum was an international curriculum. Um, 
but that that's not necessarily answering what math did I teach, right? Um, mostly what we were doing was trying to understand the relationships between numbers. So at the very beginning of the year, I wrote down a timeline and said, okay, put the numbers that you know on this timeline. And it started out with one, two, three, four, five, you know, up to whatever they could count to. Um, but then we started throwing on more complex numbers. We started looking at irrational numbers and, and square roots and all the like, different equations. And I'd, I'd give them an equation and say, okay, now put this on the number line. So most of our math focused around how do we relate one number with another and how do we then look at that as a whole? What was their math background? Oh, I mean, it was kind of all over the place. So they do the British system. And in the British system, you do, you'll do like geometry, algebra, and physics and yeah just the the different areas they'll you'll do a little bit each year kind of mix it all up yeah instead of the way that we do it and in some ways i think that's really good because physics is treated as a, a math subject well or is that what they do with science as well they, they might have i'm trying to remember if before me they did physics as a math or if they did it as a science they might have done it as a science but they would have rotated it through mm -hmm. It's awfully trigonometric. Yeah, trigonometric. yeah, yeah. So they they used to, when your mother was in school, they did that in Canada, where she would study a quarter of mm -hmm. of of uh, physical science, I guess, and then a quarter of chemistry and a quarter of mm -hmm. biology and a quarter of physics. Yeah, makes sense to me. Why why study it to yeah. get it done and then forget for four years or for the rest of your life? Yeah, there were things that I really liked about it. You're you're not able to forget. And you're able to see how things all relate. I mean, if we're looking at biology and chemistry as two separate subjects, then how in the world are we going to get pharmaceuticals? <laughs> right? Like you have to understand the chemistry of the body. So it's, 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 a, I, I think it's in some ways quite beneficial to look at each in little, in little bits. Mm -hmm. But I also see the benefit of really intensely looking at one subject for a year. I think there's pros and cons to both methods. Hmm. Why don't you just look at all four subjects intensely all year? <laughs> yeah. Eight hours a day of biology, followed by eight hours a day of chemistry, followed by eight hours a day of physics every day all year. That might be overdoing it. That would be tricky. It might challenge the chemistry of the body doing it. Yeah. yeah. It might also take a PhD to, <laughs> Rather. to look at science yeah. at that level. Huh. Well, it sounds like you had then a degree of freedom then to I to uh, oversee what you were teaching. Did you learn a lot about curriculum? Oh, so much. And I, I mean, it was every teacher's dream. I had all of the subjects that I was able to teach. I could interwine them any way I wanted. And... And the whole the whole day was up to me. If I if we were spending a long time on a math lesson and they needed to spend more time on it, we did, and we could leave out something else that day. And the next day we'd make it mm. up. I mean, I no teacher has that freedom in a school. So you weren't and preparing them to work in the factory then. They're no longer capable of functioning in a factory. And no, no <laughs> I don't think that they they could function well in that setting. No, <laughs> I think they're Although, used to. I'll say it's easier them. to step down in in your life than it is to climb up. Yeah. yeah. So what were the results? Is it fair to ask you that question? You're not done yet, but mm -hmm. but what 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 have you seen? What have you seen in their lives? Hmm. Have they learned how to read better? Have they learned how to think better? Have they learned how to relate better? Can uh -huh. they calculate better? You know, basic stuff. Certainly, yes. Yes. I mean, I think you could argue that any student would who went to school for four years every day. Fair enough. So it's hard for me to say how much of that was accelerated simply because it was classical. 
But I did have one student who graduated a week ago. And I, you know, when, when a student graduates, it's so hard as a teacher because you think to yourself, oh, I wish I could have taught her this and I wish I could have taught huh. her that. And now she's Wait till moving your on. kids move out of the I house. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm so sorry for all we never taught you. <laughs> I know. That's how I feel about my students. Think how much better life would be for you now if you'd had better parents. I know. Just, yep. Yep. And that's how I feel for my students. Um, but at the end, she she did come away with a deep appreciation for the things that she has learned, um, for freedom, for virtue, for education. And I always have them write at the end of the year, um, a a little essay, just a couple of pages. Basically the prompt is if you could build a time machine and travel and visit yourself 10 years from now, what things would you hope that your future self would still remember? What things Mm, would you want to remind yourself of? Yeah. And it's just a good way at the end of the year for them to process through all the things they've been studying and really say, okay, but what do I care about? What do I want to remember? Yeah. And she and all of my students, I was actually just reading some of them today, um, were saying things like, you know, I love that the ancient Greeks valued freedom and that they valued virtue and and that we have so much shared humanity and and that the Renaissance was this re- rebirth of humanism and what that means. And so mm. I do know that they came out of it with a shared sense of humanity and feeling that they are really not that different. In fact, my student who just graduated calls herself a black Greek, which I think is really cool. Black Athena was a book that came out not terribly long ago. Oh, really? Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I, I want to say this and then we pretty well have to wrap up, but Greek civilization in the ancient world is often called xenophobic, right? That, that in fact yeah. is a Greek word that means fear of the stranger, fear yeah. of an alien. Yeah. It's often called that. And I would, I would probably have to acknowledge that by the time you get to the fourth or third century, maybe even parts of the fifth, they're becoming xenophobic mm-hmm. because they think that they are the civilized people. They, they see a big difference between themselves and others And they think that if they let those other people in, it'll bring them down. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it became xenophobic. But the way they got there, where they did the Greek miracle, was that they were were a trade route. Mm -hmm. And they were wide open for hundreds of years. They were wide open to all these different cultures. And somehow or another, I, of course, ascribe it to Homer, but somehow, and then through him to our Lord, but somehow or another... They were able to take all these different things that they absorbed from other cultures and and create the Greek miracle of the fifth century and and mm-hmm. to create Homer. And it's incomparable. And so that that she thinks of herself as a black Greek is a really fascinating concept to me. Cause it's it okay, it's it's also sort of funny in this way. What were my ancestors doing? Right. When the Greeks were exactly Greek, right, they were cl- yep. they were swinging around in trees in nor- northern Europe. They were mm-hmm. they were alm doodlers in in southern Slovenia. You know, maybe mm-hmm. or oh, maybe we were maybe. the barbarians, right? Exactly, <laughs> and 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 we really were. Yeah, right. Yeah, we, were. we were far far from civilization. Yeah. Now we don't know. Maybe 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 they were being chased by the Magyars across China at the time. Who knows? Because the world has changed so much. But basically, mm-hmm. the, the Germanic tribes of the fifth century BC and the Celtic tribes 
they had really, really interesting cultures, no doubt about it. But they didn't have anything like the Greek miracle. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, I don't want to come across as xenophobic, but there was something wonderful about what the Greeks did there, and it was based on their receptivity. That it was a multicultural culture, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a, it wasn't a multicultural culture that didn't have anything that it was based on. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that. That seems to be the problem with the our modern no, multiculturalism is is what I would consider nihilistic, and that's that's not productive. It becomes you know instead of it has no principle for evaluation. It it doesn't have any way to say apart from the unpleasantness of it. It doesn't have any way to say that Hitler's Germany was evil, or that Hitler was evil, or that Stalin was evil, or that. You know this or that or the other thing. It doesn't have a stand any standards to judge by, hmm. yeah. which is a great challenge of our time. So anyway, that's all of that is to say that we're out of time. Okay. But 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 I I love this story that you're telling. I love what you've I love what you've achieved in Uganda, and if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you for another episode, because mm-hmm. I got a I got an email from a lady in Kenya. I think I mentioned it perhaps on an earlier episode, but. I got an email from a lady in Kenya who, who wants to talk about um, designing a curriculum for Africa, classical. She specifically wants a classical mm-hmm. curriculum for Africa, in her case, Kenya, but she does say for Africa. And I'd love, to, I'd love to get your thoughts on what that might look like based on the experience you've already had. Can you come back? I'd love to. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That makes me very happy. <laughs> Good. All right. See you next episode. I love you. I love you too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.